0: Cut, and this is the K cut a podcast about cinema james here you should already know who i am by now i'm a content creator from michigan i produce and release music under the alias boutique paul and i'm one half of the prefer not to say podcast i'm also considering taking up harvesting moon rocks
1: interesting side gig oh well uh, that's uh that's a callback so it was you this whole time god you <laughs> couldn't have made it to me a week ago <laughs>
0: <laughs> so who else is here
2: Well I'm Rachel and I love world cinema and classic film. I have worked with film in Europe and in Canada and I'm really excited to talk about our movies this evening.
1: This is Andreas. I'm the creator and main editor of Films Fatale. I love arthouse but basically any genre and era of, of cinema you know entirely and on Rachel's note please do check out her latest series on Films Fatale, The World of Movies. She just did her first French entry. And I know what's down the pipeline, but you guys don't. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming your way. But speaking of which, we have a brand new series that we're debuting tonight with the K-Cut. And this is something that I like to call the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So a smorgasbord, for those who don't know, is like a little platter of various different finger foods or cheeses. So you, you pick and choose a little bit of everything and... You know you get a taste of as much as you can so what this little experiment is basically as we introduce ourselves how do we introduce ourselves I say art house you know Rachel you say world cinema James you know usually you say like independent stuff we all share a love of film and a lot of similar films but we all have our own individual tastes that goes without saying so the first episode of each month what we're going to do now is personally recommend a film that we haven't seen to one another. This way we get a little bit of everyone's taste and whether we like the film or not is you know, beside the point. It's just getting to experience film outside of our comfort zone. So this week... I personally gave Rachel her film, Rachel gave James his film, and he gave me my film. Rachel, what did you have to deal with this week? What was the pick that I gave to you, and what did you think of it?
2: It was 1978's Days of Heaven, directed by Terrence Malick, and oh my lord, what a beautiful movie. That
0: is amazing. I know that
2: is sort of a given with Malick, but I cannot believe how he managed to incorporate both the small details and the big details all at once. It was really... Visually, you know, it didn't even need a plot. You could just watch the beautiful scenes of the prairie and be content the whole time. And I think it was fitting that the story was rather bare bones, which was his biggest criticism because it sort of let them stand back and watch the beauty of this film play out. I I just really, really enjoyed it. I would also say that it was a really stunning performance from Richard Gere and from Sam Shepard. I think Gere is quite underrated as an actor, but the person who stole the show was Linda Manns as the narrator slash younger sister.
1: Yeah, it's such an aesthetically gorgeous film, which really clashes against the new Hollywood stuff that was coming out at that time. You know, Terrence Malick obviously was a forward thinker alongside Scorsese and De Palma, but He wasn't doing the rebellious thing, or, you know, rebellious as is often thought of, which is, you know, the vulgar language, the promiscuity, or the gore. He went the ascetic route, like, what did Hollywood not let people do before on an artistic level? So, you know, yeah, bringing on board Ennio Morricone and Leo Kotke for the music, that gorgeous score, but then the cinematography, which is one of the greatest in history with mm-hmm. if I butcher these names I apologize I'm not the linguist you are with uh, Nestor Al- 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 Almendros mm-hmm. and uh, and Haskell Wexler who used natural lighting so well the sepia tone and a lot of really creative effects like the locus scene is actually stuff being dropped in reverse mm-hmm. but it looks so realistic like there are so many creative things to bring as you said this world to life and not necessarily just the story itself I think it's just beautiful
2: And at the time, it wasn't very well received, or at least not as much as it should have been, which really surprised me. Like, they thought it was visually quite nice, but that the lack of plot took away from it, which surprised me.
0: It's not really surprising that that happened, especially because the final result was almost a happy accident. Mm -hmm. Because if you notice the timeline, there's about five years between Badlands and this movie. It's because... It took two years to add it. Yeah, because he couldn't figure out how to cut it. On top of that, if I remember correctly, they set a record for shooting, what was a million feet of film or something like that? Mm
2: -hmm. They went so far over
0: budget. Also, the voiceover was added after the fact. There was never intention to do a voiceover. That was the only way that he could actually tie the story together was to include this voiceover. Because for the most part, it's just a visual film. Yeah. Yeah, there's a loose plot, but this is the thing that really tied it together.
2: And a lot of the lines in the voiceover were improvised, so it was really kind of thrown together in its own way.
1: But it's so interesting, all of this, because even if you just look at the two films you just mentioned, James, Badlands is a little bit experimental to a degree. But this is the first film that feels like Terrence Malick as we know him. But so many of these recovery methods or quick fixes, like the improvisational narration or the, the cutting down from all of this footage, those are things he became very familiar with down the road. And, you know, keep in mind that he didn't produced a feature film for decades so you know the thin red line happened 20 years yeah exactly but then once the tree of life was going on this whole thing well even the new world like cutting out so much footage reassembling stuff in the editing room the, the voiceover a stream of conscious narration in the
2: mid-2010s he made two films at once or something and oh yeah
1: night of cups and song to song yeah yeah, so that became just who he was, how he identified with being a filmmaker, much to the chagrin of George Clooney and Christopher Plummer and uh, Adrian
0: Brody and a bunch of other people. Yeah, there's stories about the Thin Red Line where whole actors were just cut from the movie and they had no idea until it came out.
2: Yeah, and same with Song to Song and his later ones.
1: Exactly. Did you hear about Adrian Brody, though, in that film? No. Basically, this was before the pianist. This was supposed to be his big break. He was going to like entertainment tonight, doing all these red carpets. Like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get by. I'm the new guy in Hollywood. And they get to the premiere. And he's in this three hour thing for like altogether, like two minutes. And he has like one line. Everything's just like facial reaction shots. And he was like with his family, with his girlfriend, he was just so embarrassed. Like what in the hell? Like, where am I? He
2: got maligned. <laughs> like,
1: well, oh, yeah, exactly. But this is, like, as you said, 20 years after Days of Heaven. So, like, this was the first instance of it. George Clooney, I think, personally wanted to punch the guy. Like, so many people were completely... They they don't even exist in this film. So they're, they're the lucky ones that they have even anything in here.
2: But Days of Heaven really brings it down to a sort of efficient form of storytelling. Yes. I was surprised that it was only an hour and a half, because when you first recommended it, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be sitting there for three hours. But it... Really told so much in a very short period of time.
1: Maybe you were thinking of, what's that um, Chimino film? The one with Christopher Walken? No, uh, I would never confuse this uh, with The Deer Hunter. <laughs> no, not, no, 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 not The Deer Hunter. Uh, Gate*.
2: Heaven's Gate, no, thank I'm you. i never heaven it with show. Heaven's Gate either. Don't worry about that.
1: <laughs> okay, that's fair. I was just thinking because they're both sepia-toned. They're both, like, after results no. of the new Hollywood movement. They both have heaven. Uh, one's beloved. The other one's a little bit more polarizing. No. Fair enough. But I, I guess at this point, you would absolutely never watch, the, you know, Heaven's Gate.
2: Oh, no. For fun. Absolutely.
1: Fair enough. But uh, I guess what are some final takeaways from you? Because this is obviously James and I have seen this film before, and you've been familiar with Malik, obviously, but this is one that you just got introduced to, you know, formally now that you've seen it. So, what are like your final takeaways?
2: I guess I'm amazed with how much he's able to do with a very simple story and what he's able to bring with just one shot and how he can encompass so much with so little.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's Terrence Malick in a nutshell, like any fan of his, like, I even like his worst stuff, like to the wonder and whatnot. So that encapsulates his entire filmography in a nutshell. I love the guy because of his minimalism and just what he can extract from that. But the film that you selected for James was kind of of the completely other direction.
2: Yep. We're going back to the 40s. So James, which film did you watch this week?
0: You had me watch what is probably the classic of all classics, Casablanca.
2: Yes, indeed. So, what'd you think?
0: I thought it was great. It definitely holds up. It's earned its place in film history. And it's definitely interesting to watch a film from a time where everything was done with such precision as was in the classic era.
2: Mm.
0: Like, I've never seen a movie quite utilize extras as set pieces like this movie. It's not, they're not even extras, they're part of the set themselves. And the fact that a lot of them have single speaking lines is really interesting because I'm not used to that from extras and movies. You know, you, you have all these people where obviously they're supposed to be kind of these more upscale people who go to this club in Casablanca because, you know, the world war is going on. So there's a lot of things happening. But also the character of Rick is really interesting because you don't know what side he wants to be on because at one, you know, one point he's all about everybody in the club. And then next thing you know, his friends are getting arrested. And he's like, I stick my neck up for nobody. I'm like, wait, what are you, Are you an anti-hero or are you just a terrible person?
2: Exactly. It's interesting because uh, Casablanca was actually pretty unusual for Zara for that use of extras. And many of the people in that film were real refugees from Europe. So a lot of the emotions you're seeing have a real basis to them.
0: Oh, that's if, amazing. I think of
2: the Marseillaise scene here.
0: And then... Ingrid Bergman's performance was amazing. It's really hard to describe. I don't think I've ever really seen a performance like that, especially from a time where romance was portrayed a lot differently than it is on screen.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Like, it seems a lot more intense than it should be. I mean, given the situation, especially... You know, their their time spent in Paris, she disappears, he's heartbroken over it, and then she comes back, and then she's with her husband, who he didn't know she was married. And it's like, wow, what's going on here? Like, okay, I need to know what's going on. And then once they start doing the flashbacks, like, oh, it all makes sense. And then once you start finding out what's actually going on, you're like, oh, this is why this is happening. This is why this person's over here. This is why this person disappeared. Also, I didn't realize a lot of those lines originated from that movie oh, yeah. that were reused in so many different media. That was another thing.
2: It might be the most quotable movie ever.
0: There's just so many things. I was like, wait, hold up. What? Yeah,
1: I think on the AFI uh, list of quotes, it's like the most represented film with like seven.
0: And it's got even more than that. It had six entries alone. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also like how it was shot. I mean, they definitely utilize the set very well. It takes place mostly in one area, but it doesn't feel like that. And the lighting is absolutely amazing i have much appreciation for classic era lighting just because they knew how to do it just the the precision and technicality of it just made everything look i don't it almost the way it was lit it almost made it seem like it was supposed to be a hopeful film even though even though it does kind of have a good note to the end it's almost beautifully tragic in how you escalate to what happens throughout
2: and you can see why I go, why I got so upset about the idea of a sequel in our sequel episode.
0: <laughs> uh. Yeah, that just seems really weird that they would want to approach that. Then again, I don't understand why they want to try to franchise everything. Some stories just need to end.
2: Mm-hmm. And that one ended beautifully.
0: It literally says, "I, you know,
1: I, I, what, what's the, the final line? Um, Louis, I think, I think, think this is the beginning the, of a
2: beautiful friendship.
1: There we go. The beginning. That's that's where it was tripping me up. I was like, because uh, it's at the end. But it, yeah, the end. It ends with a beginning. It's it's the
0: perfect way to go out. Also, it's kind of like I don't want to say a primitive twist, but I didn't see that coming.
2: Really? You, you thought uh, that Rick and Elsa were gonna run off to the desert, or?
0: Well, no. What I think once you know, and I apologize for spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the movie. When he played it off like we're going to escape, and then he's like, no you guys are going to escape i got your back i was like hold up what
2: that was partially because of the censorship laws they didn't know what the ending was going to be until a couple of days before they filmed it they kept rewriting it and they kept trying to do it one way and then trying to do it another way and then finally they settled on the one they got and they tried all kinds of different scenarios so the censorship was part of it but also just keeping a good story because some endings are more satisfying than others
1: But I think that's so beautiful even though it seems like it was just a way of trying to resolve this thing once and for all. It's so beautiful because so many romantic epics try to capture what Casablanca has but they don't realize that a lot of Casablanca is about sacrifice where they don't end up together. His way of showing that he still loves her is by her vanishing from him forever as long as she and her husband are safe. That's true love and It's so much against the conventional stuff, even though so many movies try to be Casablanca, they form their own conventions, which Casablanca to this day still kind of walks all over, where it's like, yeah, you want to put a pretty bow in everything, but if you really look at this thing... Despite all of the romance, so much of it is the aftermath, which isn't pretty at all. So, you know, their separation, how much they just feel so much anger and being feeling distraught towards one another. Their actual connection, not in flashback form, which doesn't last very long. There's not a lot of, like, actual true love that is often conveyed in film. And it perfectly goes against the... Uh, like It's it's wartime background where things weren't settled, things weren't pretty, things just weren't happy, and if you're going to convey love like this, there's not much contrast here. It actually complements it very well.
2: Mm-hmm. With this movie being made and released before the war ended, you were literally leaving everybody up in the air. You were saying, we don't know how this is going to turn out.
0: Mm-hmm. I also like that it pulls off something that not a lot of movies do well, is it makes you care about the worst people. Because when you look at all these characters, none of them are good people, regardless of their good intention. And obviously the whole kind of greater good patriotism thing is overacting through the whole thing. But none of these people deserve any happiness with how they approach each other throughout this entire story. Mm -hmm. I was just really captivating to see, you know, you, you want everybody to win, but at the same time you think it's like, really, should they? And I also noticed... I don't know if this is just a thing I'm noticing going back, but Humphrey Bogart's character is a really problematic archetype that I don't think has really ever stopped. The cold-hearted, almost semi-hopeless romantic, it says a lot about mental health issues in men that I think we're only now addressing that probably should have been addressed decades ago because you can tell that he's not all together regardless of how much he tries to show it.
1: Well, I think that was also supposed to be like a commentary on the developing noir detective uh, character type that was certainly growing at that time. Rachel, what do you think?
2: I would say also one way that people have been reading it is it's kind of a metaphor for America's neutrality and America's lack of perceived caring about the war. I know that before they officially entered the war, they were in other programs. But one quick question, what does Casablanca translate to in English? uh white house exactly and um oh yeah and okay. it explicitly takes oh, wow. place in the week before pearl harbor he says it's december 1941 but they also say america's not in the war so i think it was kind of retooled it was in the studio before pearl harbor but the, by the time the movie was made and released america was in the war it's kind of a commentary on america's entry into the war and choosing to join them
1: oh wow mind blown rachel rachel ever the historian that's amazing. Mm-hmm. As if I couldn't love that movie enough.
2: Yeah.
0: So yeah, those are my thoughts on Casablanca. I, I definitely highly recommend it, especially if you love older cinema. It's it's a masterpiece and it will never not be. Cool.
1: Well, I hope that that initiates your foray into classic cinema because I know it's something that you've been meaning to check out a little bit more of, James. But you sent me a little something a little bit more contemporary.
0: Yes. What did I give you? You gave me the
1: 1986 film. Mona Lisa by Neil Jordan, which uh, I've heard from you and multiple other people is one of the most underrated films of the eighties. And it's one that I won't lie. I was apprehensive about because I, from the little I've seen of Jordan, which includes Byzantium and interview with a vampire. I want, I'm not the biggest fan, but once I got to this, it kind of all just made sense. Which like, okay, hang on a second. Here's something that's a little bit special. And, I can easily see where its underrated stature comes from because it's so anti-neo-noir, which is strange because neo-noir is already a rebellious film style, but it's so anti-neo-noir in its own way. At the same time, it's like you could see why it's so good, but it's also so underrepresented because it's like, how do you quantify this within neo-noir? For instance, Blade Runner, you could say you know, the femme fatale is an android. Here, it's a sex worker that Bob Hoskins' character is basically watching over, George. He's an escaped, or not escaped, he's a released convict getting back into the world and he's asked to do various tasks, basically to, to make a living by, you know, people he knows through the criminal underworld. So, in other Neonar films, it's like, how do they put a spin on it? Well, this is all in one psyche, this is in the future. Here, everything's pastel colors. So it's, like, so against what noir was in such a visceral way that, like, it really does feel like its own little thing. And it's one where I I knew that I liked it, but as it kept going, I understood why. And it only kind of grew stronger because it really does a good job being its own version of neo-noir to the point where I don't think I've quite seen a film like it. Blade Runner, yeah, it's a sci-fi thing. Even if you exclude the the sequel, you have other sci-fi neo noirs like Inception, or um, you know, if you look at other iconic neo noirs. Okay, so uh, Chinatown is very similar to La Confidential. I don't recall a film that's like this pretty looking with like pastel pinks, olive greens, you know, the eclectic wardrobe that. Uh, That George wears there's so much about it that's just so not what noir is and I think that's very remarkable in a way
0: yeah definitely I think going on with the anti-neo-noir thing is when you realize who the real bad guys are you're not expecting it and that was one of the things that I thought I once you got to once you once they started to reveal who was behind certain things I was like okay hold on That doesn't make sense considering the beginning. But also, I like how it kind of adapts this almost like taxi driver-esque framework. Yeah, like the savior narrative. Yes, but the main character is somebody who is you actually want to win. Like Travis Bickle is not a good guy. He's not a guy who should be held in any sort of praise aside from what he did to save that young girl's life. But this is a guy he just got out of jail. Yes, he's working with The kind of people he worked with before, but he's trying to keep it more clean cut. And then you also have kind of a side story where he wants to be in his daughter's life, but his ex-wife won't let him.
1: Yeah, like here's a criminal who wants to right his wrongs, but is stuck in this world because it's the only way he can get by because society, his family, nobody's willing to give him another chance. And you could tell on one hand, he is that gruff, you know, short pit bull type of guy who like kicks his feet as he walks. You know, he's very gruff, like, oi. you know, like very thick accented, you know, just a rough personality. But then that always breaks when he like his eyes water and, you know, you could tell he's frustrated with his life and he has to calm himself down because he doesn't want to repeat mistakes or he's trying to break out of this world and find a better one and find a better one for the people that he's trying to save, you know, the various sex workers. So, and I, you know, I'm usually a lot more with it when it comes to this type of stuff. I didn't realize that he actually was nominated for an Oscar for this, which I think is very, very warranted, Bob Hoskins. I didn't realize he was an Oscar nominee at all. That let alone for this. So I'm very happy that that's the case. It's also
0: one of the rare instances where a character in these type of stories is truly selfless, without any sort of motive pushing it along.
1: Yeah, you know, all of this is describing, you know, the characters and how they're being built upon. But what really makes Mona Lisa, you know, not even just good, but like an uh, an over the top memorable experience. You brought up taxi driver. It's got to be that climax, you know, from I don't want to spoil anything, but from, you know, the on foot chase to the, the subverted expectations and twists to God, like I still and I watched this a few days ago, I still have those final images stuck in my head, like not like the very, very end of the film, which is a little bit more hopeful, but, you know, the moments before. Like, you know, I went on... I've just gone on record to say that this is a very pretty noir film with, like, you know, all these dazzling colors. Also, the cinematography by Roger Pratt, I knew I recognized, like, the neon lights in this film. I knew I recognized them. And the guy also did Brazil. The guy just had a knack for, like, neon colors and lights in the 80s. And it just looks so gorgeous, this film. But suffice to say, that climax is still so harrowing and and vicious like it's just very disturbing to see like it, it just like compared to like the rest of the film it's very explosive and it certainly sticks with you <laughs> like i'll tell you that much
0: oh yeah i think one of the true hidden treasures of that movie is a performance from michael kane that i had no idea was possible because i only know him in the perception of growing up and seeing him as kind of the older character in most of the movies he plays but to see him kind of younger and in a way that I didn't realize he played roles like this it's like I just see him as like you know I see him as Alfred
2: (laughs) yeah you should check him out as Alfie not Alfred in in the movie the same name because that's young Michael Caine in a very different sort of role
1: Yeah, well, first off, very fantastic segue there. Believe it or not, this is what he was known for before. Like... A bit of a cad. Yeah, exactly. Hannah and Her Sisters was kind of, like, against type, where he was, like, this bimbling idiot trying to wreck a marriage because, like, you know, he's in love. But he was known for being the deceptive kind of dangerous type beforehand which you would never see him as now because now he's like you know oh michael kane the, the distinguished you know, the, character the, actor. the soft voice gentleman the good luck charm in all of chris Renolan movies exactly no he was very different back then this wasn't very anti michael kane back then but it's it's not who we know him for now
0: yeah i'll definitely have to check out some older or earlier roles by him because after that role i'm just like okay i gotta see what this dude's capable of because it's definitely a lot more than you know a guy who's been Old, since I can remember, seeing him in his early days is just a real treat.
1: Yeah, there's Get Carter. There's, what's that movie called, Rachel Sleuth, I think, yes. with Lawrence Olivier?
2: Um, yeah, There's, you there's sk- a lot. What was it, Jaws 4 he was in?
0: Huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we do need to. That's hilarious. <laughs> we-
1: we we don't need to see that, but there are films that we need to see and there are films that we want to see. So now we're going to quickly go through, since we forgot to for an entire month, some of our most coveted films that we wish to see in 2021. Just to wrap up this episode a little bit before our weekly recommendations. So James, what film in 2021 are you most eager to see?
0: You know, I've been thinking about that and it was between a few options. And I'll go through a couple of them. Obviously, I want to see Zack Snyder's Justice League just because I need to see what his vision is. I want to see Dune because obviously that's going to be amazing. But the one film I'm really excited for is The Suicide Squad. Yeah. Okay. Because I am really excited to see what James Gunn has done with this. Just from the little tidbits of behind-the-scenes footage and like the small trailer they put together, I think this is going to be his true opus. And I think it was wise of DC to snatch him up when Disney let him go because while I didn't really care for him, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies show a true mastery of filmmaking, especially with someone with the kind of history he has. You can tell that he really put everything that he had learned up to that point being in the industry. And on top of everything, visually, the cast of this movie is ridiculous, one, he fits so many characters in that we didn't even realize he could actually do in one movie, but also, aside from the returning people, because um, Margot Robbie's obviously returning as Harley Quinn, I can't remember off the top of my head who else is returning, but there's just other off-the-wall stuff. Like, he has Nathan Fillion and John Cena in this movie also. Only he could pull off doing something like that. Oh, and not to mention Idris Alba's going to be in it too, and I just look at it like there are certain people who can pull off ensemble casts. In a way that no one else does like you you've got your Tarantinos you got your Wes Anderson's but you have people it, it's almost like when Steven Soderbergh did Oceans 11 when that first came out mm-hmm. the cast he got for that doesn't make sense on paper but the execution of it was impressive and it's almost like that for this but also he gets to make up for the lackluster product that we got from the first Suicide Squad which was completely
1: lackluster is being too kind
0: yeah that is being too kind it was kind of terrible Plus James Gunn wins the industry for being able to work for Disney on Marvel projects over to DC for this one. And then he gets to return to do guardians three. And that's something, you know, that doesn't happen very often for people in situations like that.
2: Okay. Well, Andreas, what's yours?
1: As I learned, I guess yesterday, looking this up just to confirm, you know, do or, uh, you know, projected uh, release dates and whatnot. This might actually be like a, a potential mini series or TV movie, but I I don't care. That's that's still fine. It's blossoms by Ah. Wong Kar Wai, who is one of my top ten favorite filmmakers of all time, unquestionably. And this is going to be his first film since the Grandmaster, but his first relatively like contemporary or contemporary compared to the Grandmaster, which is a Wuxia film. I I, like this is going to be his first since uh, I guess uh, my Blueberry Nights, which was his American. Uh, English language debut, which didn't go over too well, and it's arguably his worst film. But that doesn't matter. I still think he does, like, you know, a world that we know, because, like, I grew up in the 90s, so a world that I'm familiar with so, so well. And speaking of the 90s, I mean, Chunking Express, uh, you know, there are so many films uh, happy together. There's so many films he did in the 90s that encapsulated the 90s feel so well from the colors, the sound, the music, even using retro songs, but, like, in 90s settings with, like, you know, that audio quality on the jukeboxes and everything. Like, he does nostalgia so, so perfectly on, like, any director I've ever seen. So, unfortunately, given the pandemic, which puts us on hiatus, um, there's not a hell of a lot known about this right now, but all I know is... He could make a movie about, I don't know, a a cat kind of just playing with yarn, you know, coughing up hairballs for three hours, and I'll watch it, because he knows how to make a movie. He can turn anything that, you know, even the most mundane things into a pure exhilaration.
2: All right, well, I guess it's my go. I'm looking forward to the adaptation of In the Heights, the musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, yes, is the guy that did Hamilton. So, In the Heights is about a neighborhood in New York, Washington Heights, and the effects of gentrification on the neighborhood, and just the stories of the people who live there and go about their everyday lives. The musical won the Tony, and it was nominated for the Pulitzer, and it's just incredible music, beautifully done, and from the trailer, it looks like they've staged it very well. Musical movies can be so hit or miss, but it really seems like the cast and crew have thrown their hearts into it. And it is a very stellar cast, lots of musical theater luminaries, also some people who uh, we know from other stuff, like Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine is in it, and Lin-Manuel Miranda himself makes an appearance. So I think it's going to be a really good musical treat that is well done and shows respect for the medium.
1: Yeah, from what I know about that project, it's very ambitious, and it's like the one that before he could make Hamilton was like, you know, his pure blood, sweat, and tears. So it'll be interesting to see what he what he can do with, uh you know, the, the given budget and, um,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, tools and, and people that he can work with. And
2: John M. Chu is directing it. He did Crazy Rich Asians, which I think is good because musicals are so visual. And I think he's got a very firm grasp on the visual side of things.
1: You know, not to make it corny, but he also did that Justin Bieber film, which, you know, that goes, you know, Nothing to do with, uh, with with musical taste, but the guy can clearly make a film surrounding music, which is what's important here. Exactly. Those are what we are looking forward to. Now we're going to sign things off with, you know, our usual weekly recommendations. I don't know why it's the first scene that's kind of stuck in my head. Dario Argento's um, opera, I guess, because I think I was thinking walk our why and like visually aesthetic films and then you brought up music and the two and two together. Opera, this very, very screwed up uh, Giallo film, which is a specific type of pulpy uh, Italian horror movies where uh, this titular opera is supposed to take place and instead it ends up being a body count and the, the lead heroine has to figure out why this is happening. Is this an obsessive fan? Is this somebody who doesn't want the opera to take place? What's going on? And it's so stylishly screwed up, let's say, um, you know, Argento now isn't really, really good. I'd argue he he fell off very, very badly. But at his best, he really captured an aesthetic, gorgeous horror unlike any other um, filmmaker ever has. Uh, Rachel, what's your pick?
2: The Unknown. It's a 1927 movie by Todd Browning, one of the best ever silent directors. It stars Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford uh, in a very early career role. It's about a group of people working in a circus in the era, and it's very evocative of a particular mood. And I don't really want to spoil it, but there's this sort of macabre instinct to it that I think could be very appealing to many viewers.
1: Isn't it also like 40 something minutes? So you can easily squeeze that into like an afternoon. True. It's pretty short. Yeah, I highly recommend that one too. Uh, James, what's your pick?
0: My pick is Broken Flowers by Jim Jarmusch starring Bill Murray. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. It is a good one. I like it. Well, for those who don't know what it is, it stars Bill Murray as this kind of aging Don Juan type of character who, upon receiving a letter that he has a son, embarks on a journey to encounter a few of his former lovers to figure out what's going on. And I really enjoy it, especially this entry in his overall catalog, because I equate this film to the kind of films that don't get as much praise, but are a lot more top tier than people think. It's almost like Christopher Nolan's Prestige or David Fincher's Zodiac. It just sits in here and it's so captivating. It almost goes unnoticed. And it's very unfortunate that it does because it highlights a lot of the traits that really make these creatives in that realm of where we call them geniuses. And also Bill Murray's performance, I think... Wes Anderson did us the biggest favor by casting him in Rushmore, giving him the second lane that wasn't the typical comedy that we're used to seeing him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like, And it shows a lot, of, a lot more of his range than you would ever expect from... This is the guy from Caddyshack. But now he's like an
1: indie king. Like with the Wes Anderson stuff, the Jarmusch stuff, the Coppola stuff. Well i think uh between the films that we were all recommended to watch the films that we want to watch and the films that we're letting you know that you should watch you've got a lot on your plate of things to check out so (laughs) so that's it for the k-cut and now we are going into the L cut